this is just an example of how these freedoms are connected and we need to recognize that they are connected and that even if they're not connected, the press freedom is still important. And that we as people who care about, as, as free and faithful Baptists, who care about freedom, we need to be picking up the mantle of press freedom and not just religious freedom. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Last month, during the General Assembly of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in Birmingham, Alabama, I co-led one of the workshops. Our topic was Press Freedom as Religious Freedom. Also on the panel with me were Mitch Randall, Executive Director of EthicsDaily.com, and David Wilkinson, Executive Director and Publisher of Baptist News Global. So the three of us as leaders of free and independent Baptist publications, Word and Way, EthicsDaily.com, and Baptist News Global, came together to talk about the importance of press freedom, how it's under assault today, and why Baptists should care about press freedom. I was really excited that CBF included us in the program, seeing this as an important topic, because I really do think it's something that we need to be thinking and advocating more for today. And I was also excited by the, the group that showed up to hear our presentations and then join into the dialogue. We had some really great conversation and questions that came afterwards. And so we're going to have my opening remarks for the panel as to why I believe press freedom should be considered a religious freedom issue and why Baptists should inherently care about press freedom. So here are my remarks during the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly Workshop, Press Freedom as Religious Freedom. We are truly living, and this is why we decided to put, propose this panel, we are living in a time of growing attacks on press freedom, not only globally, but in the United States. Last year, according to the Center for Tech Journalists, more than 50 journalists were killed. It was the largest number in three years, but it's been around that level for decades, every single year. But the trend line that's been happening is that deaths in conflict zones are going down. That used to be the biggest killer of journalists. They get caught in the line of fire, usually accidentally. But now it's reprisal killings, assassinations for things that they have covered. And that that was two-thirds of those that were killed last year have been directly linked to the fact that they were targeted because of something that they had reported. Right. And so as the, it's, it's not just that the deaths are only up a little bit, it's that the, the cause, the motive, the assassination aspect is increasing dramatically. And this is not just a distant problem. 
I mean, one, Mexico is the deadliest country. Our neighbor to the south is the deadliest country for journalists in the world outside of an active conflict zone. And this is where you see the most assassinations of journalists. In the United States last year, we had four journalists killed in Maryland. And there was a Washington Post reporter who was an American national who was brutally dismembered in a Saudi embassy. And our administration has done nothing except for sell more weapons to the very regime that ordered and carried out his attack. On top of that, there are more than 250 journalists in prison globally because of their reporting, targeted and jailed because of their reporting. On top of that, we have a, a growing rhetorical attack on journalists. And that is actually starting really here in the United States. In 2016, at that point during the campaign, I was still mostly writing for ethicsdaily.com. They still have me on the website as a contributing editor, and I appreciate that Mitch hasn't fired me there. I mean, he doesn't pay me unless I do anything, so I guess it's, it doesn't cost him anything to leave me on the website. But I, I joke that I am a not very often contributing contributing ed editor to ethicsdaily.com since taking the word and wedge job, but I do occasionally enjoy still collaborating over there. But at that time, I went up to the Iowa caucuses for the last couple of days of the Iowa caucuses, just for fun, really, but then, you know, Robert paid me to write a couple articles, so that's always nice to go do something for fun and, and get paid. And, and so I went around to several different campaigns, saw most of the candidates who were still in the election there in those last, the frenzied last few days. Uh, saw some, some fascinating rallies, went to a really disturbing rally that was Sunday night in a church. It's another topic. <laughs> Felt like I had to take a shower after that one. But I, I also experienced a couple of things in those two days that I had not seen before. And I have done this kind of, you know, fly in just for fun journalism uh, for several different campaign cycles and a couple of different presidential and other type of pol politicians visiting. As I was leaving one rally and I'd signed up to get my media credentials for the various rallies, as I was leaving one rally and a couple of supporters are standing outside and they see the media badge, kind of like we have our name badges, uh, and, and they started making cracks about media, right? And, and this was, this is early. This is the, this is January 2016. This is before we really were starting to see serious attacks on journalism. It actually, it really surprised me. I wasn't used to that type of verbal, very in-your-face type of criticism. And then I went to another rally. My candidate probably know better who caged the media up and continues to cage the media up in the back of the room so you can't get a good shot. And a part of the script, and it wasn't that full-blown, it got much worse later in the campaign, is to criticize the media, point at the media, and on cue, the masses turn to jeer, and a couple of times there were physical violence later in the campaign. I actually... I had signed up twice for that rally because they were slow in giving up media credentials, and it's a free rally, so I had signed up for a regular ticket in case I got didn't get approved for a media pass. So I actually pocketed my media pass and entered the general area, uh, and a couple other reporters had done that, and when we were up front taking pictures as the candidate was showing up, they came to check us. <laughs> media were not supposed to be outside the pen, 
the other reporters had to go back to the pen, but I showed them my general mission pass and I got to stay out in the in the zone. And that was also a very weird feeling then being out there in the crowd when we're told to turn and to jeer at the press that's locked up in the back. Right. Like I said, these were early warning signs. They got much worse later in the campaign. And now the rhetoric has continued to grow. We've gone from chance of fake news. And by the way, fake news was a legitimate issue in the 2016 campaign. Fake news is, is stories that are deliberately not true and are never intended to be true. Not written by journalists, but were written by people abusing Facebook's algorithm merely to make money. Outlandish stories. Many of them not much more realistic than The Onion. Right? Uh, and they didn't even have a political bias on the writers. They actually were trying, and many of these were in Central and Eastern Europe that were just trying to make some money. They would try both sides, and they found that only when they wrote outlandishly positive stories about Trump or outlandishly negative stories about Clinton did it get a lot of clicks and thus make the money. When they flipped it and made outlandishly positive stories about Clinton or outlandishly negative stories about Trump, it didn't give very many clicks, so they just stopped writing those. That's what fake news is. Fake news has now become, in the vernacular administration, anything that I don't like. And if the Mueller report shows us anything, it actually shows us a lot of things, but if it shows us anything on this topic, is that many of those stories that were declared to be fake news were confirmed in the Mueller report, had been accurate. Right? So fake news has become a way to delegitimize accurate and legitimate press. And it's not just here in the United States. Several different authoritarian rulers in various countries on five continents have employed that language over the last year and a half to criticize the press in their countries. So what's happening is we are setting a standard, good or bad, we are setting a global standard. And we are creating the rhetorical ammunition that in some of these countries moves beyond rhetorical ammunition for authoritarian dictators to delegitimize, criticize, shut down, and assassinate journalists in their own countries. And the rhetoric here has moved even beyond that from fake news to enemy of the people, to borrow language from Stalin, to in the last week accusing reporters from the New York Times of treason based on an inaccurate claim about their accurate reporting and threatening a time photographer to have them arrested in the Oval Office for taking a photograph. This is truly dangerous rhetoric. Treason, by the way, is in the United States Constitution as a capital offense. Right? That's a serious accusation. And so that's the first thing that I think we need to make sure that we recognize. We are living in an era where press freedoms are under attack. And I think we have a responsibility in the United States to speak up to it because not only is it under attack here, but what our administration says provides ammunition around the world. Where they don't have First Amendment protections to start with like we do. But the second thing that's happening here is we're having two different conversations in the rights community. We have, we have advocates and organizations that care about press freedom. And we have advocates and organizations that care about religious freedom. And they're not talking about the same things. And they're not working together. You can take a list of the countries and there are rankings. Center for uh, to Protect Journalists and Reporters Beyond Borders have rankings of the, the least free countries. The countries that are the worst violators of press freedom. You can take that map. 
and you can compare it to the map, and there are several different ones. There's an official U.S. one of the, the worst violators of religious freedom or the countries where Christians are most persecuted. And you can take those maps and they look the same. And I think that's one of the brilliance of our founders of putting those in the First Amendment, as David noted. They're together, right? These freedoms are going together. But we don't talk about that. So, for instance, you may have heard about the two Reuters reporters who were recently released from Myanmar after spending about two years in prison. And the press freedom advocates did a fantastic job of pushing that case until they were released. Shortly before that, there were two Baptist ministers, maybe you heard about them, that spent a year and a half in prison in Myanmar. CBF, Baptist World Alliance, many other religious freedom advocates did a really good job of advocating that their religious freedoms were being violated, but that's not actually why they were in prison. They were in prison, yes, because of their religious beliefs compelled them to do something, but they were not in prison for preaching or for starting a church. They were in prison because they helped reporters document the destruction of a Catholic church that the Myanmar army had destroyed. That's why they were arrested. And what happened was, not only did the press freedom people not cover that case, but the religious freedom, including Baptists in the United States and globally, focused it, framed it as a religious liberty issue. And yes, it was, but it was even more so a press freedom issue. And it's almost like we're afraid that if we talk about it as press freedom, then our people won't care about it. And we have to say the religious rights are being violated so that we will advocate on behalf of our two Baptist brothers that were rotting away in very poor conditions in prison. But if we don't call it religious freedom, then maybe people won't advocate. Maybe people won't pray for them. And that's what we're wanting to change with this conversation because these are very much connected and married together. A couple more questions, a couple more examples and we'll move, move to the next aspect here. So for instance, in several Central Asian countries where religious freedom is greatly restricted, if you read the reports of what are happening to Baptists and other believers in those countries, not only are their churches being shut down, not only are they being arrested for preaching, the religious literature, the periodicals that they print, the Bibles that they print, the pamphlets that they print are being confiscated and they're fined and jailed for printing them. In eastern Ukraine, where 43 churches have been shut down in the occupied territories, and not allowed, 43 Baptist churches, and are not allowed to practice their faith. And again, CBF and BWA and others have done a really good job talking about that aspect. The Ukrainian Baptist magazine has also been confiscated any time that it is found in the communities because religious freedom, when we are compelled by our faith to tell others, we print it. Baptists have been doing that for hundreds of years. Right? We, 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 started, we started printing papers in the late 1700s as Baptists. Right? We have been seeing this as an act of our religious expression of our faith. And so one way that we live out our religious freedom is through press freedom. That's what motivates all three of us, right? Is that press freedom is part of how we live out our religious freedom. And in Cuba, we're in a way we've started trying to develop some international partnerships. Our first partnership was with El Ministero, which is the oldest magazine in Cuba, which is pretty remarkable because it's a Baptist magazine. And it has survived since 1904. But it's had some really, really drought years because they had their printing press confiscated from them decades ago. So the, these, these are tied together. The religious freedoms and their press freedoms are being squashed together. Now, we have actually helped them purchase a printer. They got the government permission and worked through that process to buy their own printer and to have it imported 
so they could actually get one of good quality. And we were able to grant them the, the money that they could get that on printer and print that now in-house. Right? But this is just an example of how these freedoms are connected, and we need to recognize that they are connected, and that even if they're not connected, the press freedom is still important. And that we as people who care about, as, as free and faithful Baptists, who care about freedom, we need to be picking up the mantle of press freedom and not just religious freedom. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Baptist News Global at baptistnews.com, about ethicsdaily.com at, well, ethicsdaily.com, and of course, us, Word and Way, at wordandway.org. And if you're looking to support quality, free and independent Baptist press, you could go to the websites of those three organizations and hit the donate button. It would be greatly appreciated. All three of our organizations need support to continue. All three organizations are doing really important work covering stories that matter and covering stories that sometimes denominational leaders and wealthy donors don't want covered. And that's the role of a free and independent press. It's why we need a free press, not just our local newspapers and our national media, but we need them in our religious communities as well. So I really would encourage you to support the work of Baptist News Global, ethicsdaily.com, and Word and Way. Don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook. Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the program. If you have any comments or feedback, you can send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.